0: Welcome to Episode 92 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crivat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at Innovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Marco Vangelisti, author, speaker, 100% aware and no-harm investor, and founder at Essential Knowledge for Transition, that's www.ek4t.com. Marco worked in finance for 20 years and in the investment management industry for six. A founding member of Slow Money, Marco served on the leadership team of Slow Money Northern California Network for its first decade. He's a 100% impact investor and shares his experience to help communities increase their capacity for local investing. EK4T is a curriculum Marco designed to give engaged citizens an understanding of the money and banking system, the economic system and the financial system, and the knowledge to redesign them. He speaks nationally as a guest lecturer and author. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crivat, and I'm here with Marco Vangelisti, author, speaker, a 100% aware and no-harm investor, and founder at Essential Knowledge for Transition. Marco, welcome to the Climate Champions.
1: Thank you, Lee, for having me.
0: With regards to climate change, what was your motivational moment that made you realize you had to do something about it?
1: Well, I was working about 11 years ago for an investment management firm, and it was a very well-respected, well-managed investment management firm, and I was part of a team Managing twenty billion dollars in emerging markets equities, and the interesting thing about this firm is that most of their clients were foundations and endowments, including a number of environmental foundations. And we were quant, so we were building quantitative models, built portfolios, investing in all twenty-one or twenty-five stock markets in emerging markets around the world. So we're not paying too much attention to the individual names. But one year, we were doing so well that I asked myself, how do we get such a fantastic return? Our clients loved us, by the way. And I found out that some of the best performing stocks in the portfolio were palm oil companies in Malaysia that had destroyed tens of thousands of acres of rainforest, which was the habitat of the orangutan, and planted a monocrop of palm oil plants. And in fact, the reason why they did so well that year is because they also earn a lot of carbon credits because they planted trees. That was kind of my moment when I realized, you know, I've been a passionate environmentalist and I even contributed to some of the foundations, environmental foundations for whom we were managing money. And I was finding myself in my professional capacity managing that same money and investing in companies that were destroying the habitat of the orangutan. Destroy the habitat that those foundations were created to protect. That was the disconnect that led me to leave the financial industry. And I think there's a big disconnect nowadays between climate change and investing. People don't really connect the dots, don't understand that there is a, most of the time, a very strong connection between what our money is doing out
0: there and the problems we see in the world, including climate change. What drives you? Why is climate change personally important to you?
1: Well, I I do care for us Earthlings being around for a little bit longer than just a generation or two, and climate change is really an existential challenge for us. It's so amazing. The more you learn about nature and how this life on Earth evolved, and the more you're marveling at the complexity of the system that found a balance between the incident solar radiation that we received every day from the sun, which is about 342 watts per square meter per day. That's the energy we get. And there was a perfect balance between that and the amount of energy we were re radiating out, which is at the time before the Industrial Revolution, 342 watts per square meter. But what we've done really is we've messed up the carbon pools in the world. And there are three main carbon pools there is carbon in the soil, there is carbon in the ocean, and there's carbon in the air. And so we've taken carbon from the ground and put it up in the air, which in part got absorbed by the ocean. And we, I think, didn't quite understand the implications of this, especially deforestation, the way we manage land and so on. I came to it probably through regenerative agriculture and my activity with Slow Money, which is a movement that tries to move money from Wall Street to your local economy with the ultimate goal of restoring the fertility of the soil. The fertility of the soil will be key to solving and addressing the problem of climate change.
0: When you meet people that don't understand what the three pools are, what climate change is, or doesn't believe the data, how do you convince them otherwise?
1: Well, it's fascinating that in this country, for example, climate change seems to be a political issue. Wearing a mask is a political issue. Wearing a mask is a political issue. And what they found is that when you're living in a society that is belief-based, right, whether the belief is politically motivated or an identity issue, then facts are not going to change the other person's mind. And so... Maybe really the key is to try to address an interest that they might have. I basically say, I remember when I was a kid, I was able to live the house and be in nature. Now your kids don't have that opportunity. They live the house and they live in an environment that is man-made. It's very hard for people to be in the wild, in the forest. Or I used to swim in rivers. Now, how many waterways in the United States are not suitable for kids swimming in them? So maybe just addressing what their interests are and go that way, because I think facts really don't change people's mind. I mean, the science at this point is absolutely not a question. What's happening to climate and to the carbon pools and to the overall heating of the planet is
0: measurable. Let's talk more about what you specifically do to mitigate climate change.
1: Well, again, since I left the finance industry, I thought I would never again, have anything to do with finance. But then I stumbled upon the work of Woody Tash. I left the industry in 2009. He had just published a book called Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money, Investing as if Farm, Food, and Fertility Mattered. And I was really blown away by the message. And what that made me recognize is that there is this very strong link between our money and what we see out there in the world. Even though most of the people... Really are just interested in risk and return. Just give my portfolio a nice return, and they don't understand that the way that return is generated is very important to our long-term survival and to the world in which we live. That's what I've been doing since 2009 really is trying to educate people about the importance of paying attention to what their investments are doing out there. And if they care about climate change, it's not just fossil fuel companies. Let me give you an example. Now we have ESG funds or socially responsible funds. Most of them screen out, let's say, fossil fuel companies. Cool. Now, do you own any banks? Because if you have banks, large banks in your portfolio, you are complicit in climate change. Why? Because since the signing of the Paris Accord, large banks have funded fossil fuel projects at the tune of $2 trillion. And so if you're thinking about fracking, if you're thinking about ice mass in in Antarctica shrinking, of course that is shrinking because there are fracking companies that need to repay their loans, that need to deliver the returns to their private equity owners, or if they're publicly traded companies, they need to meet their earnings expectations. So in what ways our own investments are complicit in the problems we're facing, including climate change?
0: Last month, I interviewed Matt Arnold, who's the global head of sustainable investing for J.P. Morgan Chase. So I'm interested because I know that he talked about a tremendous shift that they're doing where they invest in more green things, less brown things, trying to get their ratio as high as they can. What do you think of things like that?
1: I think people need to take a closer look because there is a lot of greenwashing out there. For example, impact investing, which is supposed to go beyond socially responsible, is just the investing in projects that are good for the world. And you could say, well, if people are interested in global warming, climate change, maybe a solar installation or wind installation could be really cool. That could be an interesting impact investment. Some of the big players, including the one that you mentioned, are offering their clients impact investments all over the world. Well, I know of a number of these impact investments that, for example, in Mexico, where they displaced indigenous populations that provide no benefits to the local population, but they have this beautiful solar array that generates power, right? So it's not just what you're investing in, but also how that is implemented. And so that's why I like the concept of no harm investing, which is first make sure <laughs> that you're not doing harm with your investments. And that's actually a harder thing to find out and ensure than you think, because even things that are labeled as impact or good for the environment, you know, might not necessarily be so.
0: It sounds like it's very difficult because if you're focusing on climate change, so you're happy that solar is getting built, but you're destroying habitat, you're not doing no harm. So it's difficult to find projects that in every way you measure them are no harm. Are you
1: familiar with the work of Walter Yene? from Australia amazing work he's a soil biologist that has been taking a much broader view at climate change and we are focusing on co2 for example and co2 is a greenhouse gas of course because of the greenhouse gases we re-radiate back you know only 339 watts per square meter per day into the atmosphere so there is an imbalance of 3 watts Per square meter that we have to deal with. But a couple of things we need to realize. First, that CO2 only represents 20% of the greenhouse gases. 60% of them are vapor hazes, and they're generated usually around small particles of soil that are airborne. And so once you have vapor hazes, you have 60% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So those are even more important than CO2, for example. And so the idea is how do you deal with those water hazes? One way to do that is to try to aggregate them into first albedo clouds and then rain. The albedo clouds, for example, reflect 120 watts per square meter per day back into the atmosphere right? So those are very important. And more interestingly than than that, the albedo clouds then can form raindrops and bring water down into the ground. And there are basically three rain nuclei that exist to create raindrops out of albedo clouds. And one are salt particles, usually due to wave activities. The other one are ice crystals, they're usually uh, generated at high latitude or high altitude. But the most important rain nuclei are biophilic microbes that hitch a ride to the upper atmosphere through the transpiration of plants. And so the most important way of dealing with climate change is basically to clear up the skies through the transpiration of plants. And the other thing that is happening is that the transpiration itself is transferring heat from the ground up to the upper atmosphere. And not only that, but plants are also great carbon pumps that take CO2 and put it back into the ground where it belongs. So this might seem a little bit complicated. And I wrote a blog about his work, and maybe we can provide that <laughs> because you know, I might have not done complete justice to it. But the, the idea is that, for example, conventional agriculture is responsible for a lot of the greenhouse gases out there because they till the soil. And that creates basically soil particles that then create this vapor hazes that represent 60% of the greenhouse gases that we're, we're dealing with. So long story short, the way we manage land, the way we invest money in agriculture has a very large impact on climate change. And the way we invest also creates the conditions for this problem to become worse.
0: So I was nervous about our discussion because I know that you believe the market's going to crash, I think, and I want to get to that at least a little bit. But now you're making me more nervous because at least CO2 is something we have a good handle on how we might deal with it, and it's just a question of whether we're willing to make the effort Now you're talking about things that I think are a little bit harder. So I'm not going to sleep well tonight. Thank you very much.
1: It's actually, it's the other way around. Okay. It's the other way around. So if you think about this, first of all, we're not going to die of CO2. CO2 concentration in in the air is not lethal to humans until 10,000 parts per million. The only problem with CO2 is that it represents a gas that is part of this greenhouse gas problem but it's a minority of it. It's only 20%. And we can handle the majority of the greenhouse gases in different ways by managing the hydrological cycle. And the way to do that is to enlist plants in two jobs. One is taking carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into the the ground. But most importantly, they are a natural air conditioning system. And for every gram of water that transpires Uh, from the the plants, you're transferring 590 calories from the ground to the upper atmosphere. Plants are are doing this amazing double job, which is both cooling the planet and sequestering carbon. Of course, it's important to stop CO2 and, and all the transformation in the industry with solar panels and so on. It's all cool. But we are leaving on the table the most important lever we have, which is land management, extending the vegetation and the time and the expanse where land is covered by vegetation, allowing that vegetation to cool the planet down. If you're a chef, you have two things that you can play around. One is, what is the heat in the stove? Are you at one or are you at five? And then you can have a lid and the lid can be off a little bit, right? Which one is the most important? Is the lid or is how much heat do you have under the pot? right? It's the heat. The heat is the most important. Well, you can cool down the planet using forestation and vegetation and transpiration of plants. And that is way more effective than just worrying about the lid and whether it's 60% or 70%. Of course, it's important. CO2 only mediates 5% of all the energy in the atmosphere. 95% of that is mediated by the hydrological cycle. And just getting that, we could do that. So that's the amazing thing about the work of Walter Yena is actually Extremely helpful and hopeful because, frankly, we're going to go to 500 parts per million of CO2. We're going to go probably to 600 before we complete the process of rebalancing these carbon pools. It might take 100 years. Our job is to manage the energy, the extra energy that we have in the atmosphere, and that can be managed much more effectively by the way we deal with the land, with the vegetation, and so on. So deforestation right now should be a crime against humanity because we need to expand the area that is vegetated around the world if we want to deal with climate change.
0: A year and a half ago or so, I interviewed Harold Newman, who talked about the Harnessing Plants Initiative at the Salk Institute. And what they're doing is they're putting a cork substance by modifying DNA into the roots of the plants so that they will sequester more carbon in their root systems. So when you pull them out, it'll leave more carbon in there, and they think they could double the amount of impact plants make. What do you think about that?
1: Okay, I'm looking at 3.4 billion years of R&D on this planet, and we humans think that they can outdo that? I mean, really? Do you think that it's like we can get plants to do, I mean, it's like all we have to do is is not to destroy the work that nature is already doing, Stopping deforestation would be much better than increasing the ability, even assuming that we can do that. So let's assume that, yes, we can genetically modify plants so that they sequester a little bit more carbon. How much can we scale that? Wouldn't it be easier to simply say, let's stop deforestation and allow the plants to do the work that they're doing so well?
0: I'm with you. I would love to stop deforestation. Don't get me wrong. Right. But a common theme on the Climate Champions is talking about and discussing whether people are capable of change or how much change they're capable of. And one thing that the Salk Institute solution has going for it, it doesn't require much change. Here's different seeds to use to grow your soybean crop, for example. Whereas what you're talking about means there are winners and losers. People have to change what they're accustomed to. That's a lot harder to do.
1: Actually, it turns out David Montgomery is a professor that wrote Growing a Revolution. He is a geologist, married a biologist, and they've written a number of really fabulous books. I mean, he wrote Dirt, The Decline of Civilization, stuff like that, saying that every time we start tilling and destroying the land, then civilization falls. And then after you know, a thousand years, nature has rebuilt the fertility and we redo the cycle again. And then A couple of years ago, he came up with The Hidden Half of Nature, which is an amazing book about how plants work with the biome and the rhizome in the soil and how a lot of the sugars. Plants do amazing things. They take solar energy and turn it into sugars and food for everybody. And between 30 and 60% of that sugar that they can capture and make just by taking in the solar energy, they give out they feed their microbes in the soil, which then provide other nutrients. And there is a, an interesting symbiotic relationship there. And so what he wrote recently is this growing a revolution showing that no-till agriculture and regenerative agriculture not only has all the climate benefits you imagine, but it's more profitable. If you go to Kansas... You can look at the trucks and you can look at the tractors and so on. The shiny new ones are of the people that are doing regenerative agriculture. At this point, we are keeping up an old, very damaging system of agriculture through subsidies. We are collectively keeping alive this old, wrong way of doing things that is also very damaging from the climate that wouldn't be economically viable if we didn't subsidize it. It's not like, oh, you are forcing people to do something different. No, if you take away, for example, the agricultural subsidies and just let there be a playing field, what you would see is that regenerative agriculture would win because this requires less inputs, right? Less fertilizers, less pesticides, less tilling. You should probably have Gabe Brown on your podcast. Uh, and I don't know if you've uh, come across it. He's, he's amazing. He's a farmer, you know, traditional guy that at a certain point, he went to uh, a regenerative agriculture workshop because he just wanted his wife to shut up because his wife kept saying, you should go to this thing. So he went and then he said, oh, my goodness, let me try. And now 13 years later, 14 years later, he went from 1% of carbon content in his uh, soil to 11%. He has a tremendously profitable operation. He's doing better than all his neighbors. And basically he has adopted what is called conservation agriculture or no-till agriculture and so on. Nature works much better when you ally yourself with her than when you try to force her. And so all this kind of technological solution and genetically modified thing, I'm skeptical because I'm thinking nature had 3.4 billion years to do R&D. And who are we in a couple of centuries to to beat that?
0: I really got you going.
1: Yeah, and I'm usually talking about something else, but as you can see, I'm very passionate about this.
0: I love it, I love it. Do you wanna talk about market crash at all? You know, I have a
1: course and part of the, the curriculum is to understand the extent to which markets are manipulated. And that if you look at the past 20 years, and you see the returns of the financial markets in the past 20 years, and you think you're going to see the same in the next 20 years, you're going to be disappointed. And I can make the case for that. I cannot tell you when the crash is going to happen. But I can give a sense for the extent of the manipulations of financial markets. I would love to hear a little bit about it. One thing I want to say about the markets is, in my view, financial markets are factory of regrets. So it doesn't matter what you do. You could have done better you could have lost less. You could have bought Tesla or more of it, or Bitcoin two weeks earlier or two weeks later, right? I mean, it's like- You're singing my tune, man, you're singing my tune. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) I've been out of the markets for a long time, not so much because it wasn't a financial decision, it was a moral decision. I didn't know what large corporations were doing, and every time I would take a closer look, I would find something that I did not agree with. But one thing that people need to understand is that, especially in 2020, we've seen kind of a decoupling of financial markets from the economic reality. What's going on with that? The economy cratered, uh, unemployment went up, and everything got just a standstill. But financial markets you know, have done very well. Thank you very much. Now, what is behind that? Now, behind that is, among other things, heroic liquidity maneuvers by the Federal Reserve. And what a lot of people don't know is that when the Federal Reserve buys anything, it just creates the money to buy it. So historically, the Federal Reserve has bought treasury bills and treasury bonds. But in 2008, started buying mortgage-backed securities, just private securities created by Wall Street. And in March and April of last year, 2020, they started buying ETFs, bonds, corporate bonds, and so on. Now, they expanded their balance sheet by $3 trillion to intervene in the financial markets. And you know we throw around trillion dollars here and there, and people might not really understand what it means. But just to put that in context, would you like to guess what would be the amount necessary to buy all farmland in the United States? No, but I'm very excited to have you tell me. $2.7 trillion. So the Federal Reserve created $3 trillion to prop up financial markets, an amount that would have been sufficient to buy all farmland in the United States. Now, the question is, do you think financial markets are a little bit manipulated? And of course, you can then respond to this in two ways. One is with the theory that there is now the Fed put, which basically means the Fed now stands ready to expand its balance sheet and intervene in financial markets as soon as they go down. In which case there is no downside risk and we can be happy with our 401 case going up forever. Or that the financial markets are so out of line with reality that at a certain point they have to realign with it, meaning they have to decline by a lot. The problem is that it's very hard to tell the timing. It's really hard to know when markets will adjust. It's funny because you took your money out in 2016, and Tom Hartman had a book at the time called The Crash of 2016, which you might have noticed did not happen. <laughs> right? And so it's very hard to know when things will go back in balance, but it seems that we're living now in various separate realities. There is the financial markets, which is living completely separate from the economic reality. And frankly, the economic reality is living separate from the natural environment. In fact, Nature is seen as an externality. You know, If you ask the economist, oh, nature is just an externality. You know, it's not something that's even factoring into the equation of economic decisions. And so I think at a certain point, all of those three aspects, aspects—right, the natural environment, the economic system, the financial systems, will have to realign somehow. It might be something very traumatic down the line when we are cooking ourselves. Or hopefully, we'll follow what Walter Yen is suggesting. And we get our act together on moving away from industrial agriculture and using the land to really cool down the planet and reverse climate change. But at a certain point, things need to realign. And so that's why all my investments are in real things I can touch and feel and look at farms and businesses and other things that I can, you know, I have a line of sight. I know exactly what they're doing. And if the market goes down 30%, that's not going to be affected at all because they're not financial instruments. They don't have data evaluations. They don't go up and down.
0: How has the pandemic affected what you do? It has helped a lot
1: <laughs> because I've been teaching uh, for the last couple of years a course for individual investors to learn how to do aware and no harm investing. And I tended to get like three, four students every time. That was fine. Last year in September, I got 33 people to sign up. They were coming out of the woodworks. And I think what happened is that they felt very isolated. And the idea of coming together with a group of people that were inspired to do good with their investments, that were motivated by ethical considerations, and spending a month together discussing and learning together was really very attractive for them. And so last year was my best year ever. I <laughs> think it was probably due to the pandemic because people wanted to learn
0: and wanted to learn with people that
1: they would share some fundamental values with.
0: Maybe it'll continue after the pandemic. We can only hope, right? Well, I just finished teaching a course to
1: financial advisors. And, you know, I'm challenging them, right? Because I'm saying, no, sorry, ESG funds is not enough. You really need to change your business model to move into this new area of no harm and impact and uh, aware investing. And they have been absolutely excited about it because they felt that disconnect between what they're seeing out there in the environment and in society And what you hear when you turn on financial channels and say, oh, everything is groovy, stock market keeps going up, right? And they had the sense of disconnect and I connected the dots, you know, and show them that, yes, what we're seeing right now in the financial markets is a very distorted reality that at a certain point needs to be reconciled with the economic reality and the environmental reality we're living in.
0: You talked a little bit about your background before doing what you do now. Do you want to talk more about it?
1: Yeah, very briefly, I am a mathematician and I ended up in Berkeley with a scholarship to do research in economics and finance. And then I started working for a company that was developing quantitative models for the quants in Wall Street. This was in the mid 80s when we didn't have you know, laptops, we didn't have emails, we didn't have cell phones. I'm dating myself here, but it almost feels like 200 years ago. But it was just in the mid 80s. We were working with mainframe computers and developing statistical models of stock markets and bond markets around the world for the early quants in Wall Street. That's how I started my career. And then I took a little detour doing art for a few years, but eventually I found my way back into finance when I ran out of money. <laughs> and I was part of this team managing this $20 billion in emerging markets equities. And it was a fascinating journey because mathematics abstract from reality. You can think of mathematics as the ultimate abstraction, but finance also extract from reality. And when you're extracted from reality, you're simplifying it and you're doing a certain violence to it because you're losing the whole story. It all boils down to numbers. It all boils down to returns or financial numbers or uh, you know market data. But there is a whole reality behind investments. And that has been basically the awakening for me when I realized what we were doing, destroying the forest in Borneo on behalf of environmental foundations. And when I met Woody Tash and learned about slow money and so on. So, what I have been doing in the last really decade is trying to democratize my understanding of the large systems, money, banking, economics, and finance, because a lot of people, regular folks, feel intimidated by those subjects. And I think people need to know how those systems work because we might need to transform them if we want to be around for a while. And so that's part of the work I've been doing.
0: Can you talk about your biggest setback?
1: I would say the, the toughest setback for me was realizing, you know, I was very proud of having found a way to use my quantitative skills. You know, if you're a mathematician, I would have loved to teach, but somehow I didn't get into that But finding real-life application of quantitative techniques is a joy. And the biggest setback is when I realized the skills I had developed were helping an industry that I believed was very damaging to society and to the environment. That was the major setback for me. And I had to leave a very well-paid job. I don't know if you remember how the economy was in 2009. So leaving a very high-paid job at the time was not easy, but I had to do it. So that was my major setback: is the frustration of seeing my quantitative skills being used, and I I was deploying them right for an industry that I realized was very damaging. And I believe that finance is mostly extractive, not all of it, but a lot of you know a lot of the returns are paid by somebody else, including the forest in the Borneo workers communities of color, and so on. And so that's the setback is now I'm not using my quantitative skills very much. I'm interested in the full story, not what can be reduced to just numbers.
0: What's your biggest success?
1: My biggest success is now in the last year or so, seeing the response to what I've been trying to teach in the last 10 years. And before then, it was a very lonely <laughs> campaign, you know, I would say it's important to be attention to what our investments are doing. And I would maybe I'm I don't know how to run a business, but I was uh, not really seeing any traction. And the last year I see so much interest now for this topic that I think I'm very excited, frankly.
0: I think you could have also used your biggest setback as your biggest success, realizing that your path wasn't the path that sang to you and moving in a different direction.
1: And I would say I've been lucky because I found early on a sense of enough. And, you know, having worked in finance, it's very easy to get very used to a pretty extravagant lifestyle. And my lifestyle really hasn't changed since I was a student. I mean, I still live in a small place. I like living in cottages. I don't own a car. I have a scooter. I live a very simple lifestyle and I've lived that when I was making a lot of money and zero money as an artist. I really didn't change, but that gave me tremendous freedom in terms of deciding how I would use my time. And that's, I think, in my view, something that I feel very proud of.
0: Can you talk about your vision of climate change over the next 20, 30, 40 years? How are we gonna do?
1: Well, I have an even bigger project, which is The Great Turning. Have you heard about The Great Turning?
0: Tell me about it. It Is the shift in
1: society and all its institutions required to bring about an environmentally regenerative, socially just, and spiritually fulfilling human presence on planet Earth. That's the project I've been working on full-time for the last 10 years. And so when we're talking about changing institutions, society and all its institutions, what are the institutions that we need to change? Education, politics, culture, but also the financial system, the money banking system, the economic system. And I've been focusing in the last couple of years on the financial system because I recognize that as key. So it's not just climate change, it's also social harmony, it's fairness and equity. And sure, climate change is part of it because if you take care of the natural environment, you will take care of climate change. And in my view, preserving the integrity and the health of the natural systems is A very important task. Are we going to make it? So there is an interesting quote by Maimonides. He said, hope is the belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. So it's probable. We're not going to make it. Okay. But it's not necessary. It's not necessary. It's probable, but not necessary. And so hope is the plausibility of the possible. And the possible is the great journey, and it is completely within our ability to do so. But we have to disenthrall ourselves from, for example, the financial markets and the idea that our health is measured by our checking account alone and not by the relationship we establish with people, the quality of the environment in which we live,
0: and the quality of the economy in which we are operating. Instead of just judging by money, there are other things we need to focus on. Yeah. So has the pandemic changed your vision of the future? I guess I don't think so. Turning, turning. I was
1: really hoping that we would understand how much we are related to each other, how important it is to take care of the least of us. And I don't think we really learned the lesson, unfortunately. We would call the essential workers heroes. We would give them hero space for a little bit and then... Now, for example, Albertson you know, had the hero pay until May of last year, and then they used the money to buy back their shares. So they boost their stock price instead of taking care of the people that were delivering goods and they were working in their shops and so on. So that was my hope that the pandemic would make us realize how important it is to take care of the least among us. And I'm not sure, although I see the Biden administration seems to be oriented towards that idea of trying to improve the conditions for everybody in this country. So I am hopeful that at least for the next four years, we're going to see some significant changes in the way we operate as a society.
0: When you say you hope for that change and that you didn't get it, I think you did get it more than you know. I think we got it more than we know. Maybe Albertans didn't get it. But there are a lot of people now that are very dedicated to doing things differently. I know so many people that have a much deeper focus on other people and what they can do, not only for no harm, but to do good. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think your hope is alive. I just think that businesses maybe haven't completely changed, but I think a lot of people have. Mm. Okay. Okay. I am almost pathologically optimist,
1: <laughs> but I'm also really, so I look at the data and I look at what's going on and it's challenging, but I also know that there is the possibility for transformation. That's what I've been working in the last 10 years. And so that's what I do.
0: What's one piece of advice you can give to people that want to help? Look at what your money's doing out there. I mean, that would
1: be the, the advice is like, make sure that your money is not participating in the problems you want to see solved. And it's as simple as that. I mean, can you imagine an environmental foundation using its money to destroy the forest in the Borneo when their name is all about preserving habitats? Did they understand they were doing that? Well, you see, environmental foundations are divided in two groups. There is the investment group that is managing the money, trying to grow it, and fund with a 5% every year the operations of the program office, they're giving the money away. So the guy was doing his job, he was growing the assets of the foundation, and he picked the best managers in town, we were it. But this lack of connection between what our money is doing out there and our values is really the key that we need to transform. And in fact, if we were to do that, it would be transformational on a societal level. And we don't have to wait for the government to do it. It's your money. You can do whatever you want with it. We tended to have given it to financial advisors and wealth managers like, oh, you deal with it. But in reality, we could tomorrow decide, no, I don't want to participate in the destruction of the forest. No, I don't want to participate in bank funding fossil fuel projects. No, I don't want to participate in the prison industrial complex. It's within your ability to do tomorrow, if you want. And that's why I'm so excited working with financial advisors, because now I have some financial advisors that are practicing aware and no harm investing. And so the people that don't want to manage their own money, they can actually now, I finally, after 10 years, I can point them to some financial advisors that are practicing aware and no harm investing, which is transformational. Excellent. Is there anything else you want to say? If people are interested in climate change, they need to look at the work of Walter Yene. And I can give you a link to the blog that I wrote about his work. And also, if people are curious to learn more about the Aware and No Harm Investing thing, they can attend my course called Towards Aware No Harm Investing. I can even do a little code for you so that your network will have a discount. And otherwise, keep up the good work. I'm sure our paths will cross
0: again. I hope they do. And on that note, I'm gonna wrap this up with a wrap. Palm Oil made Marco money. It had a great return, but it also made him want to leave his investment management firm. You wanted to do something good, a life differential because you knew the Earth's challenge was existential. You realized that we were bending nature's rules. We just can't mess around with the three carbon pools. Kids today, they can't be like him. They can't jump in a river and safely swim. Farm food fertility, it's all gonna crash. You recommended reading Slow Money by Woody Tash. Take some time to know your investments, how they make money you should be tracking. They may be making your money in things you don't like, such as palm oil and fracking. Tracking GHGs, it's like solving puzzles and mazes. Some of it is caused by agricultural vapor hazes. You talked about soil and trees, again and again, and asked us to read the works of Walter Yenna. If we keep doing agriculture this way, the the land we're gonna kill we've got to go regenerative let's go no till 3.4 million years of mother nature's r d there's no way we're going to improve the dna of a tree from stock investment you've convinced me to take a vacation because of the risk created by federal market manipulation if you want to invest responsibly you've got to learn to do it right we've got to take your class and learn about line of sight living a simple life it's just not that tough You've just got to develop a sense of enough.
1: Whoa, that was very, did you write that while we were talking? (laughs) Wonderful. I love it. I love it.
0: Since having Marco on my podcast, I've been trying to be more aware and to figure out how to move my money into more impactful investing. It is not easy. It's very difficult to have a complete line of sight into what my money is being used for. I definitely need to take his class. If you're interested in taking the class as well, head over to ek4t.com. He has courses listed under the What We Do tab with a workshop that's starting in September. And under his Resources tab are some great blogs. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, Visit my website at crevateenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it 5 stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Marco was able to walk away from a high-paying investment firm by developing a sense of enough and being motivated to lead our transition to 100% no-harm investing, helping to mitigate climate change.